Support for the game podcast is brought to you by StarCityGames.com, the world's largest independent retailer for Magic the Gathering singles and supplies and home for the best strategy content on the web. If you would like to support the game podcast, feel free to check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash the G-A-M podcast. Welcome to episode 87 of the Game Podcast. I'm Jerry Thompson here with Brian, the doomed traveler Gottlieb. And man, I, I feel like this is a little bit inaccurate. You haven't been traveling a ton except for, you know, moving everything across the country. No, no, it's it's not about the act of traveling. It's that I, I'm just, I'm getting on a plane very shortly tomorrow morning to go be a, a best man at my cousin's wedding. And usually when I travel, I'm very well-prepared. I'm careful. I have like everything put together. I have a plan. I know what I need. And for whatever reason, I've just been super busy the last two or three days and running around like a madman. And I've done no preparation and I'm doing like probably like a Cedric Phillips style dash to the airport, just grabbing things (laughs) haphazardly. So I feel doomed right now. I'm a nervous traveler. I like to have everything in order and have everything together. And I don't right now. Okay, fair enough. Well, I'm glad that I could assist in making you a nervous wreck by it, you know, forcing you to host this podcast and everything. No, you never force me to to host the podcast. I'm always happy to be here for all the game family, everyone who wants to hear the game podcast. I, this is honestly the high point of my week still. I love sitting down to record and especially in these circumstances with a pro tour right around the corner. I'm dying to know what you have going on. Yeah, man, I was going to say this is kind of interesting so we don't really do an episode like this very often normally like i'll write an article about what i predict will happen at the pro tour but after some recent twitter i don't don't want to say drama necessarily but like (laughs) i i ended up buying into a different article piece this week i don't know if you saw that yes i saw this is the most ludicrous thing ever like ostensibly writing these articles, I guess not ostensibly, for, literally writing these articles is your job and you purchase the rights to this article, thereby cutting into your salary <laughs> just so you can trash Jonathan Rossum's argument pro Jeskai control in modern. That's how strongly you feel about the topic. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. In a nutshell, that's what's going on. Uh, I mean, it's it's just worth it for me because... I already know that I have some very choice things to say, right? So I just think the article is going to be good. And it's just something that I want to get out there. And I'm sure Todd would have done a good job, but Todd is also happy with the 50 bucks that I gave him. So <laughs> yes, I'm sure he is. Yeah. I, I would look forward to reading either one of your takes. This is sure to be an interesting article series because I know Jonathan feels really strongly about Jeskai. He has strong opinions about the deck being good. And you know, if you've listened to the game podcast the last few weeks, you know, we don't share those opinions right now. Uh, so it'll yep. be interesting to see how you guys contrast each other's arguments. Yeah, so this podcast will likely be going up on Friday, and then I believe my article will also be going up on Friday on the premium side. So that should be fun. But other than that, uh, we did our bonus episode like last week, sort of. I mean, it was earlier this week, I guess. And it was a mammoth three hours long, basically just like a, a mailbag episode from the fine people in the game discord. I've heard some nice things. You've heard some nice things. I kind of wasn't expecting that. 
No, no. I, I honestly thought people were going to revolt and get very sick of us after three hours, but it seems like people really enjoyed the format. They enjoyed us talking about some different stuff, you know, some life stuff, just some silly stuff, some magic stuff. Uh, people really, really enjoyed the episode. I'm kind of shocked right now. And and it's becoming rapidly one of our most downloaded episodes. So I don't know, maybe we're onto something here. Maybe we should revisit this a little bit more often. Obviously, it's not something you can do all the time. People really seem to like this format. I mean, yeah, people like it, but we also haven't really done that yet. So right, I can see right. I can see why people would enjoy it, but it's definitely something we can't do all the time. But yeah, if you're interested in just learning about anything and everything relating to us, by all means, go check out that episode. You know, one of the most interesting developments, I don't know if you've seen this on Twitter, but there was kind of two separate threads that we had rolling throughout the article and and one of the threads or, or throughout the podcast, one of the threads was us asking for some more feedback, like things we can do in terms of stretch goals. And then we also had another, I thought, really interesting conversation. And a lot of people found it very interesting. We had a conversation about smoking, which is not a place I really thought our podcast would go. And some of our listeners have combined that. And there's a growing swell of people who are asking if they can have a stretch goal for you to quit smoking. Like if there is a theoretical number that we could put forth to drive you to quit smoking. And no, we talked man. a lot about like having to do this for yourself and that not being the appropriate way, but it's got to feel really good that people like care about you enough that they want to financially incentivize you to take on this very difficult task. Yeah, but the financial incentive is already there. It's like cigarettes are eight bucks a pack in, in Washington state and stuff like that. It's like, I mean, obviously I would save money in a lot of different ways if I just quit, right? It, it is right. it is nice. It is nice. But I think, you know, people aren't necessarily going about it like the wrong way, like maybe the wrong way for me personally. Like it's not something that I would necessarily react to. Just like, right. I don't know, if people are showing support, then that's cool. That That is very nice and makes me feel good and everything. But yeah, like we talked about last week, it's it's something that I have to want to do, right? Not because I'm getting paid to do it or whatever. Yeah. And I, and I said as much as a response, but I still, I can't let you be a pessimist about the fact that there's a lot of people listening to the podcast who just wanted to have your back and cared about you. And that's a cool thing to see. Uh, I always appreciate, you know, our fans are definitely the type of fans that are willing to go the extra mile for us. Word. So shout out no. to everyone who proposed that idea. No, absolutely. I, I definitely agree with that. And I know that people support us and they care about us more than just the content, you know, and that is right. part of the reason why I'm still here every week. It's just like the, the people are awesome. I actively Agreed. enjoy doing this and like interacting with people and everything. Like it is all part of the big picture, you know? Totally agree. Anyway, uh, there's, there's a pro tour in like a day and a half. Yeah. A really interesting yeah. pro tour, maybe a historic pro tour, uh, as it stands right now. Definitely one that yeah. people are hyped for. I hear a little, I, I don't know. There was something there in your voice. Maybe you're not no, quite as excited like, for this. You're like, oh, it's historic. And it just makes me think about the Silver Showcase nonsense and everything. And it's just <laughs> like, yeah, okay, sure, team, pro tour. This hasn't happened in over a decade, blah, blah, blah. And I don't know. Magic is not a team sport to me. And especially mm. the way this this has gone down where it's like, you're each playing one format. Basically like everyone is working on their own separate format. Like you're not a team. 
no one is really helping each other with their, like maybe some people are helping each other with their decks or whatever, but like, that's just not really how it goes down. And then it's going to be like, Oh man, like what should I do? Turn three in this matchup or whatever. And they're like, I don't know. I didn't test your deck. It's it's just silly to me. Do you think this is a commonly shared feeling amongst your fellow competitors right now? Or is this something probably not? Probably not. People, people love team formats. They love sitting next to their friends every round. And I mean, I, I have the, the very, very best person to sit next to you in Josh Joe, just my, my best friend. We always have a bunch of fun playing in team events and everything. And we've been hanging out since the GP in Minneapolis last weekend. And it's, it's gone well. Like testing has been basically a dream and all that stuff. So it's like, I, it's, it's going to be fun. I know. And it's, it's going to be exciting and there's going to be a lot of sweet storylines and everything. But at the same time, I just feel like this shouldn't exist. I am of the same opinion. I am pretty low on team tournaments, but at the same time, I'm willing to just like shut up about it, I guess. I, I know a lot of people are getting vocal about it at this point and, and hoping that team tournaments go away, but I know a lot of people really, really love team tournaments. I don't feel the same way, but I'm kind of fine with it existing. And, you know, I, I do think it'll scale back. It's one of those things where we didn't have it for so long. And then Wizards went so hard into team tournaments. It just feels like it's been a, a constant barrage of team tournaments since they finally reinstituted them. And a lot of the luster is lost at this point. You start to remember the flaws with the format and, you know, all the logistical headaches that can often come along with it. And the thing that you're talking about too, where especially in the context of team constructed, you're actually very isolated. There's there's not the overlap you would expect. I think it's a very different thing than team limited, which is a unique format in and of itself. It's a whole different way to play magic. That's cool to me. I, I like that. And even if I'm I'm still ready to trend down on team limited as well, I'd still put it on a higher pedestal than I do something like team constructed, which uh, like you said, it, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I mean, even the team unified formats, assuming that the formats were like viable and good, like for example, this standard format, it would probably make an okay unified standard format, but it's kind of like cut and dry. It's not very interesting. Like team unified modern, I think is actually kind of sweet. That That's a thing that you actually have to work with your teammates on as far as like, you know, how do you build your decks and like what concessions can, can you make and all that sort of stuff like that feels more like a a unified thing than just we each play our formats and our fates are tied together yeah i'm with you it's definitely an upgrade it still doesn't do enough for me to push it over the edge as a tournament that i'm super excited about but it's an upgrade over these three isolated formats for sure yeah and the other thing about this pro tour that i think probably won't get talked about a lot is what's the deal with like the people who were in the pool of qualified players that were not affiliated with the team and had to form teams out of that? Like there are teams of people who have just never met each other before, right? That's kind of a thing that's going unsaid leading into this event where it's people are like, Oh, team Musashi and team Genesis and ultra pro and all this stuff. Right. But it's like, what about the other half of the tournament where like these people are just probably having like a nightmare of an experience. Yeah, I mean, it'll make for a really good story if one of those teams finds some success. You know that'll be exactly the narrative that coverage will seize, and correctly so. I mean, that's a point of interest. Yeah, but what what about the person's experience? 
Yeah. And then only that one team that finds a winning experience, which by the way, is totally plausible just because of the isolated nature that we're talking about right now. It's completely reasonable that, you know, three people can independently do very well and don't need that kind of team chemistry to really catapult themselves to the next level. I can buy that. But on the whole, there's going to be a lot of people not having the best experience for this pro tour. Yeah. And I I don't want people to lose sight of that in the midst of all this celebration and everything. It's like there's there's so much else going on besides people wearing mismatched socks to honor Richard Garfield and the silver showcase and a bunch of money at stake and all that. Like, you know, there's there's a whole picture. Sure. Sure. Always good to talk about the things that are flying under the radar. Yeah. Anyway, my strat for this is something that I kind of wanted to put forward since we played in Toronto. And I know I talked to you a little bit about this where I think it is actually correct in team tournaments to play three decks with very polarizing matchups. Yeah. Why don't you expand on that theory a little bit for our listeners? Cause I, I think there's some merit here and I, I think it's also an interesting approach. So how many teams do you think will register this exact lineup? Some sort of red aggressive deck, humans, and some Delver deck, either like Grixis or Teamer. 20%. And maybe like two-thirds of those decks. Is it like another 10 or 20%? Like, Yeah, I mean like 15, 15 to 20 would be my guess again. And there's, there's, those are very, very powerful baseline decks that you're presenting. And I think it's got to be the default range the the one of those that i think may be less represented than you would at first respect is actually the red x aggro decks in standard i could see those trending a little bit down but on the whole that's that's not important here i i think your i think your hypothesis is a good one so there's going to be a lot of people who utilize that baseline strategy because they're like oh we'll just play the best decks easy if you think about it and think about how Likely it is that a lot of teams come to that conclusion. We're like, oh, these are the best decks. Like certainly two of the three of us are going to win our matches, right? Then you start looking at a world where those strats are very easily exploitable. And there are some decks in modern that humans has a very difficult time with. And there are some decks in standard that the red deck has a very difficult time with. And then depending on what happens in Legacy, I think that's the one that is more likely to fluctuate where it's like, you know, maybe the team has a Legacy expert or whatever. Maybe the modern team has a modern expert that like doesn't play humans or doesn't play Delver and they play something else. But like two of the three decks are the same, right? Yeah, a little tougher to find your polarization in in that slot, I think. Yeah, for sure. But if you play a deck that's like 70% against red and a deck that's 70% against humans and a deck that's 70% against Delver, like how wrong can that be? Because yes, you might run into like weird matchups or bad matchups, but it's super unlikely. And then it's also more unlikely that two of the three people on your team actually lose. That's true. I want to ask, I mean, part of the reason why these are the default powerful strategies is that they're kind of good against the field. Like they have strong, very proactive game plans against everyone. 
And when you have a strong proactive game plan, one of the benefits you get is you don't get hyperpolarized matchups. You don't get a lot of 70-30s. Um, I could believe there's some 60-40s out there. Right. Does that does that harm this theory at all? The fact that these three decks tend to be like aggressive linear style decks that can really close the game quickly and really prevent your opponent from doing any stumbling or in some instances in something like Grixis Delver, prevent your opponent from playing any magic at all. Right, but the decks that are generally good against something like Grixis Delver are decks that aren't necessarily getting punished by that sort of thing, right? Like either they have a bunch of mana sources or fast mana or they're like, yes, you can like wasteland me and stifle me, but I'm just going to kill all your threats and that'll give me a bunch of time, like that sort of thing. So, I mean, there are definitely decks out there that have 70-30 matchups against the expected field. So for standard... You could maybe make a case for some Grixis deck against the red-black decks or mono-red, whichever red deck you think is going to be more prevalent. Decks like uh, Mardu Pyromancer and Jeskai I, like, used to be super good against humans. Now I think that's less so with Militia Bugler. But like Green-Red Valakut, I think, is a deck that is like very good against Tron, very good against humans. Okay. Yeah, I could buy that one. And then I can always build a control deck to just like shred Delver decks. Like that is super easy. Okay. So this is one of those things where we have a legacy expert who has its own approach to the format and, and has access to that kind of strategy. So I'm buying that, I guess. And your your theory is that having these hard polarized matchups is just worth it, given the, percentage of the percentages of the field that I've presented to you. Yeah. And I mean, you could play the three best decks and have everyone in your seat flipping like a slightly weighted coin every round. But I think it is more beneficial to just have 70 30s because people are going to prepare for humans, right? Like that is they're, right. they're not going to play a deck that just like loses to humans unless they beat literally everything else. No, I, I, there's a cost in wearing the target. And it's it's one that I try to, you know, maybe to my detriment avoid pain. I I do not like to play the deck with a target on its back for exactly the reason you're talking about is that it could very easily, if things go poorly for you, if you run badly, you could just face a string of unfavorable matchups throughout the day because people care about your deck more than any other deck in the field. They are focused on you. And it goes beyond just having positive matchups too, especially in a format as wide open as modern. This is something I come across all the time is that when you're playing the best deck, it doesn't even matter that there's some decks which may not in the default configuration have positive matchups against you. It's that every single person has a coherent and well thought out sideboard plan against exactly what you're going to do. And when you're playing something a little bit out of left field, you might send someone scrambling. They might have a general idea. Oh, maybe against, you know, Eldrazi Tron, because that's something that's falling out of the meta that I, I want this, this, and this, but they don't have a set all right, if I, kn- I know if I take out this, these six cards and add these six cards, then I'm definitely a 60-40 favorite post-board. Nobody has that kind of data when you get into the more fringe decks. And that's something you lose by wearing the target as well. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I, I guess I can just like spoil the three decks that we are playing. So it's me, Josh, Joe, Matt Severa. Uh, we have Matt Severa on standard, which I think is to be expected because he is the Constructed Master and he got a lot of the points for Constructed Master by casting Unlicensed Disintegration a bunch. Like, he is very familiar with Standard. He understands that that is the format that he wanted to play. 
Josh Joe's playing Modern. I'm playing Legacy. This could have, like, been switched around a little bit depending on how things broke. It's kind of weird because, like, Severa is not playing red cards because I beat him so badly over and over and over again with the mono blue paradoxical outcome deck that he's just like, I can't, I can't do this. Yep, that deck's a player. And there's going to be a very substantial percentage of paradoxical outcome at this Pro Tour. I am sure of that. I keep hearing reports of, uh, I know the Japanese have a version of the deck at this point. There's like a splash black version floating around. There's some splash red versions floating around. And there's still just the baseline blue version, which is very, very good. Yeah, so... Uh, Severus played with it a little. I've played it a lot. I think I have a list that is pretty good and like our deck lists are submitted now, but his job tomorrow is basically like get as familiar with the deck as he possibly can. Uh, I I'm really glad to hear you ended up going that way. I, I think it's a great choice for this tournament. There's still, it's not an unknown quantity at this point, but there are still some groups of people I think who don't understand just how good this deck is. And you know, when I brought it to you, you were, you were hesitant for a moment. And I think by the time, by the end of our conversation, we had gotten to a point where you realized there was a lot going on there. Even in the early nascent stages of this deck, you could tell there was a lot of room for growth. And if you guys have made that growth at this point, I am very excited about your chances in the standard portion of this tournament. Yeah, and, and what are the matchups like? It's like you you crush everything that's mid-range. You are very mm-hmm. good against control. And the the more mid-rangey the red decks are, that like you're, you're even that much better against them. A lot of it is because of Metallic Rebuke. And there's just not like a, a good counterspell like for one or two mana that really hoses these mid-range decks, but Metallic Rebuke does a ton of work. One of the reasons why I was initially hesitant to even think that like this deck was good or remotely playable was just like a gross misunderstanding of what the deck was supposed to be doing, where it's like you see these lists mm. with like three copies of Aetherflux Reservoir, right? And they're just like, yeah, we're this paradoxical outcome combo deck. And I'm just like, well, that plan clearly doesn't work. Yeah, the the more I played with the deck, the more I realized you don't have to lean hard on the Aetherflux Reservoir game plan. It, it's nice to have. I don't know if you're, it's something you're completely giving up on at this point. Uh, I still have copies of Aetherflux Re- Reservoir in my deck and sideboard. But you're right, there's plenty of other paths to victory. And honestly, the you can play a very reasonable, fair game and you generate so much card advantage through your paradoxical outcome, virtual card advantage through Psy. There's just a lot of ways to play games. And then Karn, I don't know if you're doing Karn pre-board or post-board, but Karn wins games very quickly out of this deck. Yeah, no no reservoirs, three Karns main, still four outcomes, four rebuke, two brawls expertise, two commit, like... It's basically just like you spend the early turns developing, just like playing out some prophetic prisms and stuff. And then at some point you just kind of explode on them. Like either you go like statuary into Karn or like expertise into one of those cards or like you have a really good side turn. The side turn is usually followed up by like a paradoxical outcome turn, which is like, again, an insane side turn. And I, I was just like templing people out. And it's just like, what are these reservoirs in here for? They don't do anything. Huh, I, I'm interested to hear you caught every single reservoir. I, I always liked it as a non-creature threat that basically people had a harder time removing than something like Karn. But as Vraska's Contempt starts to fade away, and I, I think that has happened to some extent, I do think that the metagame has gotten a little bit softer to Karn as time has gone on. We'll see if this clean approach yields dividends for you guys. But on the whole, I, I, I love this deck choice. I'm really excited you ended up there. 
Yeah, I think the the mono green matchup is close ish, and it, yeah, it feels like, it, it feels unfavorable to me. Honestly, I, I keep hearing like back and forth people who say it's fine, people who say it's it's close. I think it's slightly unfavorable. They just have like a lot of problematic openings against you, and sure, there's there's ways to counteract them, and and you can do your thing sometimes very early too. But there's a a good number of games I just never feel in against mono green. Yeah, their fail rate is super low, but a lot of the time it's what specific cards they draw. Like Steel Leaf Champion is just insane against you because you can just never block it. Right. Blossoming Defense can mess you up a decent amount. I like post board, it's like, you know, they have Vivian and Brontodon and like all these things where if they kill your statuary, it could like really slow you down a lot. But again, that's one of those things where like if you haven't tested against the deck you're just like oh what is this statuary doing it's like well it's you know allowing me to cast three spells a turn (laughs) so i mean do you think there is still some information lag as far as this deck goes do you think people are going to be prepared for it is it something that some people will still sleep on at this point i mean it is possible that if people are testing against like these clunky moto versions that they just write off the deck and they're just like oh this is a combo deck right but if if you play with the deck and you actually try and tune it and make it as good as it can be and you actually put in the work and stuff, you're just like, oh, this this deck is insane. Like, I'm losing to, like, Flame of Keld mono-red decks, or, like, not even necessarily Flame of Keld, but, like, anything with Wizard's Lightning, basically. Like, mm. if they have a lot of, like, one-drops and burn spells, then it is significantly tougher than if they are trying to cast, like, Rekindling Phoenix against you. Yeah, I can buy that. I, I will say that I expected the mono-red matchup to just be abysmal, unwinnable, have absolutely no chance. And the more I played it, the more I was winning. I had Reservoir in my deck still, which I think changes that matchup pretty dramatically. And if you want to make a case for Reservoir, that's a spot you would certainly make it. You know, it's very easy to just like gain seven life on a turn and that's more than enough to get you rolling into the next turn and then it just goes from there. Um, But I, I would expect Mono Red to trend down. I think you're exactly right that the format has gotten more and more mid-range over time. There's going to be more rekindling phoenixes than Wizards Lightning. That's my prediction. Right, and the Wizards Lightning deck is typically pretty bad against Mono Green, which a couple weeks ago was sort of like, you know, the hot new thing or whatever. So people are sure. scared about that and they're like, "Oh man, I need a bunch of phoenixes and like unlicensed disintegrations and all these slow cards." It's like, "Oh yeah, man, I'm just like salivating over here." Yeah, I, I'm very excited to see what you guys can do in standard. This is this is a great call. Yeah, so this this deck is pretty incredible, and I'm I'm very happy that we registered it, and I am very confident that Severo will be able to transition. You know, like I'm not really worried about his seat at all. Sure. Past that, it's like I I mean, obviously, like there's some innovation to be done, right? Because this deck is a thing. It's like kind of popping up on Magic Online a little bit more, and people are innovating and. I wonder if, you know, like the the shell of the deck was kind of set in stone, right? And I wonder if we're not just like missing something. Like maybe there's an even better version of this deck, right? Like you were talking about the splashes and it's like I saw Riser's Black Splash and I played with it a little bit. Mostly just didn't think it was worth it. Uh, You talked about Red Splash a little bit. Like maybe Joy was busted. I don't know. Yeah, I'm not sure either. I know I've heard some good things coming from our Discord. There's people there who who really like it. You know, people who are competing in this Pro Tour. I'm not going to give any names, obviously, but it could be time for a breakout of even a different version of this deck. There's still a lot of room for this deck to evolve and do good stuff going forward. Yeah, 
So mostly hoping for some favorable pairings, but like from playing on Magic Online the last few days, I got to imagine that a lot of those people are Pro Tour competitors and there's just been so much Grixis. And if if people play that deck, like it is just a joke. Like pure Mope Grixis, just four drops and five drops and nothing really changing. And ATP tap lands. And- yeah, you, you'd love to play against that all day. Yeah, I mean, in theory, they have... A braid, duress, negate, siphoner, like all of these kind of like scary cards, but it's like that's only twenty cards of your deck, and it's really not that big of a deal if you're not putting them on as quick of a clock, you know? You wanna know what card is real unplayable against paradoxical outcome? The Scarab God. I'll take any chance oh. I can get to call Scarab oh, yeah. God unplayable. But man, oh, is it yeah. gross in that matchup. It just does stone nothing. Not not only is it just really bad in that matchup, but it also just walks or like slams head first really into like brawl's expertise and commit. Yep. It's just like anything. even if there it were slams into anything they want to do, they can just they can win the game on the spot. There's like a billion different things that could happen when you do something as foolish as playing the scarab god. So yeah, there's there's some problematic cards. You know, I guess I talked a little bit about being hesitant to go the main deck card route because I'm worried about something like Vraska's Contempt. But when you actually stop and think about how good that matchup already is, it's like, okay, pick my card off. There's so many other things I can do. It doesn't even matter. Yeah, as as long as you are able to cast Memory or a Paradoxical or even just like have Psy active for a few turns and like draw some cards that way, like you will find more threats. Like that is not what I'm worried about. Like I, I eventually shaved the fourth card because of that, just because it was like, oh, I'm, I'm like a little too threat dense. Like my draws are a little bit too clunky. So, uh, so you got there with Mox Amber, huh? It, it took a very different route than you had expected initially, but this was a card you liked a long time ago. In order to finance me trying a few other decks, like purchasing some modern decks on magic online and stuff, I actually cash out of my Mox Amber collection on magic online that might be a mistake i fully expect like a lot of the cards in the deck to spike this weekend like mm-hmm. sai is just busted and it's like only in the last couple of days have i started thinking about sai and legacy and it's just like oh man like i i wish i had more time that's exciting stuff i would love to see what you can do with that because you know a lot of cheap spells out there in legacy and you know paradoxical outcome is a card that has seen a lot of play in Vintage, uh, an incredible amount to the extent that it's probably going to be restricted. Yeah. And hasn't touched Legacy really at all. And I think there's enough in Legacy that Paradoxical Outcome could definitely make a home there. I don't know if it needs to be in conjunction with Psy. Maybe these are two different decks we're talking about. But it does surprise me that Paradoxical Outcome hasn't done more in that format. Yeah, I thought about it. And it's just like, man, Metallic Rebuke gets way better you get to play Force of Will if you want it. There's things like Thoughtcast, uh, just as many zero mana artifacts as you could possibly want. You get Arayo to go with your Mox Ambers. Like, can we just play like the standard deck in Legacy? Like, is that a thing? Because realistically, no one can beat a Psy. Man, it's a lot of upgrades. A lot of upgrades. And yes. there's there's a a vintage level of power in the paradoxical outcome engine. So, and now you're getting closer to that paradoxical outcome engine. It's not returning Ornithopter anymore. It's returning a lot of more busted stuff. Yeah, you have in, you have the statuary built into all of your cards because they're all Moxin. And yep. you have things like Ancient Tomb. Like, you could like, turn one side and make a bunch of Thopters, right? It's just like, what are they going to do? Terminus is a thing, sure. Like, maybe you get combo killed or whatever. But if we're talking about, like, beating up on Fairdex, beating up on Delver, like, that just is. It's over. 
Maybe we could talk to them about moving the Pro Tour back a week so you have some time to explore this. Sigh oh, in all man. formats. I, I, dude, I would love it. I, I started going kind of deep down the rabbit hole today in Legacy because I wasn't... The Legacy was the one that I was not super sure on. Okay. But I, I eventually like reined myself in and stopped looking at Psy Ancient Tomb decks. Yeah, it's a little late in the game for that on uh, the Zero Hour. A little bit, a little bit. And, you know, thankfully... Like if if this were an individual pro tour, like who knows what would happen, right? But yeah, since it's a team thing, I got my teammates to look out for and everything, and I also had Cho yelling at me a bunch. So <laughs> good. I think that was the right call on his part, probably. Ah, we'll see. We'll see. Someone's someone's gonna break it with Sai for sure. Maybe. Anyway, for modern, we have a little bridge from below Vengevine deck. Hmm, another deck we have talked about. We've really, we've given away some very good strategies for this Pro Tour over the last few weeks. We've talked about all of this stuff leading up to the Pro Tour. There's no surprises here. Vengevine has well, been on our radar the last few weeks. Oh, wait, are you about to blow my mind with something, with no, something no, new? No, 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 no. So whether or not it is good remains to be seen quite yet. We 4-0 dropped some leagues. The, like the deck seems good. I mean, I, I'm not playing uh, like David's list with like the bushwhackers and all of that nonsense. I just mm-hmm. like bushwhacker to me does not strike me as particularly good. Do you, do you have greater Gargadon? I do not. I don't have any sack outlets at all. Okay. Well, I'm, I I have I have Bomac Courier and Hollow One. Oh, so a little a little mish, mishmash here, a little bit of a new wrinkle to this archetype. Yeah, it's a, a little bit of a mashup. I didn't really like a lot of the one drops in David's deck. I'm also not playing Hangerback Walker. I'm not going like super hard on Bridge from Below or anything. Vengevine, yeah. Yeah, so, well, I mean, Vengevine is easy enough to trigger. And like once you have Hollow One, that's on, on a lot of your busted turns, like Hollow One is just another zero or one mana creature anyway. Mm-hmm. So this deck, I don't know. It It is very fast. You have a lot of cool elements. And once you have Bomac or your Hollow One in the deck, like you're... Not super resilient to Graveyard Hate or anything, but it definitely helps a lot. Yeah, at least you're not all in at that point. Let, let me ask a couple of comparison questions. Is yeah. it more explosive than the kind of default Vengevine decks that we've seen thus far? Like, is your is your Goldfish Clock faster than that deck? Maybe like half a turn slower, sort of. Like, mm-hmm. you have Hollow One, which can function like additional Vengevines, right? So like, there are turns okay. where... You put one Vengevine into play, and now it kind of feels like you have two. Or if you don't draw Vengevine, you also have Hollow One. So, like, you have different levels of explosiveness. You don't have a finisher like Bushwhacker, and you don't have Hangerback Walker to just, like, ditch your hand. And, you know, if you ever have, like, the double bridge from below draw or whatever, it's like, I'm I'm not really going to have that, right? But I think that this version consistently does its thing much better than that one does. Can you give me an average goldfish turn over like a hundred games? What would you anticipate its average goldfish turn to be? Uh, like actual kill is maybe turn four, but like virtual kill is 2.5. I don't know. Okay. Okay. Because and, like, and obviously vir- virtual kill only applies in matchups though, where they can't in turn kill you. Like if they right. have, if they have turn threes in their deck, then your virtual kill is irrelevant. Yes. So Tron has been very favorable uh, there are decks like, you know, Jeskai, Mardu, where it's just like, how are they possibly going to come back from this? Like, yeah, yes, they maybe. can't do anything against you. Right. 
the game might go on for a few more turns while they're just like, well, I guess I'll, you know, bolt your venge vine to not die, even though you're going to make some zombies and also get it back, right? Like, the games go on, but in theory, like, they they are basically dead on turn three. So I'm assuming the trade-off of this slower theoretical goldfish is some more resiliency like you talked about and an ability to fade hate i'm assuming you're not as afraid of rest in peace as these older builds were uh i mean rest in peace is not going to 100 percent win the game but it is definitely a, a thing that i would rather play with like not on the battlefield i guess it's just like oh, the sure. deck is, is is so great when you're doing its thing where it's like yeah obviously i don't want to see graveyard hate but yeah, I, I do think that the deck concedes far less often to a rest in peace just because you have some backup plans and maybe rest in peace is kind of like the same thing where if they have reasonable interaction in addition to rest in peace, like if they're also like pathing your hollow one, then it is kind of a virtual kill for you too. But mm-hmm. there have been games where like, you know, we've we've beaten scavenging uses, we've beaten a lot of relics and Nile spell bombs, beaten some rest in pieces Leyline is has not been like super common. Yeah, not too many decks playing that right now. I guess the the mirror might be the place where you see that most often. I I know they were playing four leylines for a while. Yep. Uh, in the default builds. Yeah. So it, it's basically just like a little bit more consistently does like the medium broken thing, but is not doing like the super broken thing that takes like all the kind of bad cards, like all the hangerback walkers and goblin bushwhackers and stuff like the deck isn't going to do that but it is going to put like eight power into play right and just hopefully that's good enough yeah i I like that move i have to say i i think this deck is definitely probably even more than paradoxical outcome trending into the known quantity range i i don't think there's any teams out there who aren't aware of the expansion of this deck over the past you know a couple weeks or so i know collins mullen wrote an article about it on star city today it's certainly been part of our discussion for a while now and i i think people are clued in pretty hard on this one so shifting to be a little bit more resilient is definitely a change i can get behind yeah I, I do think it's going to be out there. And again, I, I mean, this is one of the things that's going to make this Pro Tour exciting. Like similar, similarly to the outcome deck is the question mark surrounding Vengevine. And it's just like, what is this deck going to look like? What is the optimal build that is go- going to come out of the PT? Because it's like, you know, I'm, I'm searching for the truth, right? Like that is what I want to find out. And I, I did my damnedest to try and figure it out. But I just always feel like, you know, someone else found like some missing piece or whatever that I didn't. So I, I feel like we are going to have good versions of those decks, but maybe not the best versions. Well, you never know. Obviously, there's there's a lot of room for innovation with both these archetypes. There's just been so many branching paths with this deck, so many odd flex slots and so many, do you have sack outlets? Do you not have sack outlets? Just a ton ton of variables i mean like really the only constants are the stitcher supplier vengevine interaction which is like maybe there's a whole completely different build of that interaction that people are going to find and be able to exploit so yeah i mean vengevine could very easily be the card of this tournament and it could be in a context we're not even thinking of right now that wouldn't surprise me yeah and uh awkwardly enough that that was like another shell that i considered for legacy it's like ooh, we get basking root walla and like maybe buried alive or intuition like cabal therapy like this could be good and it's just like well is this just a strictly worse dredge deck like i don't think so because 
you're doing the thing where you like put four, four power into play before they can do anything, right? And Hollow One is maybe a little bit better too. So I don't know. They, like this could also just be a legacy deck. It could be. We've done the Vengevine thing in, in Legacy before. Vengevine is actually a card with kind of a bigger Legacy pedigree than a modern pedigree at this point. It's really done a lot more in that format than it's done uh, in modern to this point. So it'll be interesting to see how that changes. Yeah, I mean, it had Survival of the Fittest, which is like cheating. Yes, that is a very good way of describing Survival <laughs> of the Fittest. That card is completely unfair uh, and ludicrous, and especially in combination with Vengevine. But uh, there's probably been some other Vengevine shells. I'm sure there is like dread shells and, and weird things like that look to take advantage of it. But on the whole, it was very much predicated on survival and basking root walla shenanigans. There was a green blacklist for a little bit. And also when uh, I started playing elves, I sideboarded like buried alive Vengevine to, I don't know, try and beat control or whatever. It was not good. That's super, super cute. That's the cutest thing I've ever heard. Oh, it was trying to beat Engineered Plague. That's what it was. Okay. I mean, Engineered Plague used to be a very widely played card in Legacy, so I, I get why you would have made that concession. I think there's probably a better one out there. There there really has to be, right? That's pretty clean, though. Honestly, it it's, is, it's yeah. not a lot of slots, and it's a lot of power on the board. Yeah. And, I mean, the decks that were trying to Engineer Plague, you were not good at you know dealing with 12 haste power. Very true. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to think of what was in this green black deck. Like uh, Ken Adams played a version of this deck too uh, after survival was gone. It wasn't a Necrotic Ooze deck, was it? I don't remember. Shaman combo with Ken Adams. Shaman combo makes me think Necrotic Ooze is in the mix. Yeah, Buried Alive, Reanimate Thoughts. Yeah, because you could Buried Alive for Necrotic Ooze, Trisk, and Devour, right? And then just reanimate the uh. Necrotic Ooze. Oh, I'm so happy right now. Anytime we get to talk about Necrotic Ooze on this cast is is going to be a very good day for me. You know my feelings towards that card. Yeah. I've always loved that card. Yeah, and then he had Fauna Shaman and Venge Vines to bury it alive for, and just like Tarmogoyf, Thoughtseize, Cabal Therapy as a backup plan. Yep. Yeah, that sounds, you know, somewhat reasonable. I Maybe Citrus Supplier is an upgrade for those style of decks. Who knows? Who knows? There's a lot of unmined territory in these eternal formats at this point. He also had natural order in the sideboard. <laughs> Things used to be so cute in Legacy. I really miss yes. those days. I mean, Legacy felt incredible back then when it just like you could come up with any goofy plan to avoid, you know, common trends. I remember playing Cephalid Breakfast with natural order in the sideboard and naturally in order up progenitus against graveyard hate and it worked like it was good enough. So there, there was so many crazy things you could do back then. Yeah, but now everything is so unfair. It's no fun. Yeah, the format looks very different than it used to. I'm not really sure what the main like motivating factor behind that is. I mean, maybe it's things like Emrakul and Gristlebrand. They certainly play into it to some extent. Used to be you were reanimating Iona, not as scary. Yeah, I think part of it changed when Legacy got more eyes on it. People started working really hard to like actually break the format like build new decks, tune old decks, and just like the overall quality of like player and deck both rose pretty significantly. Right. A lot of inefficiency was definitely forced out from the format in those kind of glory days of uh, the Star City Open series when there's still a players club and all that stuff. And there was consistent high level legacy being played. A lot got fleshed out in that period. Yep. 
Uh, so no more necroticus. I'm sorry. Okay. I, I had my fun. We got it in. I feel good about it. I'm ready to move on. We got, we got the name drop. So what, what do you think is going to happen in modern? I'm kind of curious to hear this because, you know, I've, I've been like thinking about it and speculating and, you know, trying to take note of like what was showing up in the modern leagues and everything and trying to figure out like who was a pro tour player and stuff. But humans is the easy default deck, but I do feel like people are just going to like try and play busted stuff. I think that we still don't know how good humans is. I think that Bugler is a fundamental change to the deck and we're still unpacking that. It could be better than we even know at this point. And there might be other things you can do with access to Bugler. There might be other new little wrinkles you can add to humans that people will not be prepared for. So it'll be interesting to see if any of those things pop up. But on the whole, I I think this graveyard thing is the spot most likely to be mined. And then I have this nagging, nagging voice in the back of my head. And it's basically all of the internet and all of them yelling at me to pay attention to the blue-white decks. We've had this conversation ad nauseum about the problem with reactive control in modern. If you look at some matchup percentages and all the matchup percentage data we get is flawed. We never get big enough sample sizes. There's so many variables at play. So, so none of this means the world. But there is some evidence that blue-white control is winning at a dramatic, dramatic clip right now. It has access to the white sideboard cards. If you read my article last week, I talked a lot about just how important those white sideboard cards are. It's difficult for those decks to play rest in peace because they rely on Snapcaster Mage to a fairly large extent, but possible if if it pays off enough. So, man, I could see a good tournament for blue-white control too. It it really wouldn't surprise me at this point, despite all of the hate we've thrown its way, despite all of the concerns I have about reactive strategies in modern, it feels like they can find some really good cards here. And then I, I need to know how Bugler plays into that. If Bugler just invalidates their ability to play that kind of game, they could be you know, completely shut out. It's consistent access to meddling mage to shut off Terminus might just be enough to turn the matchup in humans' favor. I don't know at this point, but those are the kind of the three axes I want to pay attention to. I want to know how the graveyard decks are doing. I want to know how humans are doing it. And I have this sneaking suspicion that blue-white control might do something here. I think it's possible that green-red Valica just beats everything right now. So I've said this in the past and I've felt it in the past and then I've played games with green, red Valakut and I just just don't beat anything ever. I I don't know. It just feels like the deck is so, can you say a deck is underpowered that has access to like a fairly consistent turn four combo with a whole mess of interaction and plenty of ways to stall the game? I I don't know. It it doesn't feel like the power level's there. Well, it's, it's slower, right? It's like slower. It's clunkier. Because its average CMC is so high, it's a little bit more vulnerable to mulligans and stuff. So like, it has a lot of issues. And nothing has changed. The deck right. hasn't fundamentally changed as time has gone on. Not really. I mean, Bloodbraid Elf showed up for a little bit. I think that was just an error, right? Like, people just wanted to try it out. I don't think it really accomplished a whole lot. But the way things are going, it's like, well, if, if control is getting good, like, this deck is pretty good against it. If control is there, it means the format's slowing down. If humans is playing Bugler, it means that they're probably slowing down a little bit. They're focusing a little bit more on actually like, you know, having some uh, staying power rather than just trying to kill you as quickly as possible. And then there's these graveyard decks where 
they're good and they're powerful, but they're not like dredge, you know, they kind of just like do their thing and then they're done. And then they hope that it's enough. Well, whereas like dredge just keeps going and Valakit. Yeah. Yeah. And Valakit's one of the decks that can just like play main deck relic, play main deck anger of the gods. And they like actively want to do that. And those are, you know, relic is it's whatever. Right. But like anger of the gods is actually just insane. No, that card seems fantastic right now. Uh, maybe something like a, a blue-red control deck can rise to prominence. You know, Thing in the Ice looks kind of well-positioned as well, so maybe that's something we should keep an eye on. But I agree, Anger of the God seems like a huge card in this format right now, like one that's just waiting to do something. Yeah, oh, you you buglered up a bunch of humans, right? It's like, okay, you know, Anger... Anger. Mostly takes care of it. I mean, there's Thalia's lieutenants and freebooters and all sorts of human nonsense right but like anger is still a pretty clean answer to at least the smaller stuff yeah so anyway that's that's my thing i think that the dredge deck even though it's not a dredge deck but like the vengevine deck is potentially very broken and i think our list for it is pretty good it's one of those things where it's like oh man i can try and like next next level people and play valakut or whatever but like i think the dredge deck is good and it will be, I, I, I enjoy being on the right side of history, I guess. It's just like playing the deck that is going to be like kind of the breakout thing of the tournament. You don't want to be the person who didn't play Elves in Berlin or, you know, all these other historical breakout decks that people know about and go, oh, I'll just beat that. And then the deck puts up like a 68% win percentage and you feel very silly about yourself. You know, Eldrazi during Eldrazi winter. I, I think at that point, everyone knew that there was very powerful Eldrazi out there. And a lot of people still passed on them thinking there were other avenues to go down. And it's sad when you miss those opportunities for sure. Elves. I played like I tested against Nasif a bunch of matches like zoo against elves. And he kept beating my zoo deck. And my, my takeaway from this, I remember just like how naive I was was just like, oh, he must have gotten lucky, right? Because, like, Zoo always beats up on these stupid elf decks. And then <laughs> we get there, and I'm just like, oh, yeah, that deck is basically just like a meme, right? It was like some joke that showed up on Magic League. And we get there, and, like, everyone, all the Americans, like, Gindy and them are just like, oh, man, like, we need Mog Fanatics, we need Seal of Fires, we need, like, all these anti-elf cards. And then, like, the vendors are sold out of Glimpse of Natures, and I'm just like, what is wrong with people? Like, why does everyone think that this deck is so good? It just It's like a pile of crappy cards, right? And it's just like you actually play with the deck or play against it. It's like, oh, oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, this deck's broken, like straight up broken. Yeah, so Elves was the worst kept secret for that tournament. I, I just had it, right? Like I could have played the deck. Everyone did. Every, I mean, I knew about it, and I was, I was barely a competitive player at that point, and I, I knew the deck was starting to pop up. Yeah, and just like, I just, yeah, I chose not to. And I'm just like, well, that was dumb, you know? Yeah. What, what was your what was your deal during Eldrazi time? Were you not playing at that time? Is that when you were at Wizards? No, I, so there were like some tournaments and then I got to a hotel in Atlanta. I was staying with BBD and I was like, look, man, Eldrazi is what's up. We just need to find a good list. And he was like, yo, I totally agree. And then we played a bunch of different Eldrazi decks over like the next three days. And we're just like, can't find a good one. We give up. That's tough. Cause I think they were all good. <laughs> Even the awful ones turned no, out to be good. They weren't, though, because like the, the moto one, like the colorless one, the top eight, it, it's like dude went six and four with it in the Swiss and then lost in top eight. Right. Uh, it was like, yeah, yeah. Like that deck was bad. I think the blue red one was also pretty bad. 
And that that was another experience of mine where it was just like, I just never thought to like add colors to the deck because the colored Eldrazi didn't seem good and they're not good in a vacuum, but once they cost, you know, a mana or two less, then they all start being great. And I also didn't know the math behind like mulling for an Eldrazi land. It's just like super favorable to go down to five cards. You're like 92% or something to find one of the lands. And it's like, oh, well, now that I know if I can just like mold a five to demonic for my land, like I just never thought about it. I never did the math, you know? Yeah, so I I was all over that deck. I actually, I, I guested on a podcast like two weeks before that Pro Tour and I guaranteed one of the Eldrazi lands would be banned after the Pro Tour. It was such a good called shot. But when I saw the East-West Bowl, like red-blue Eldrazi deck, my my mind was blown. I never considered going down that route. And it was such uh, a brilliant piece of deck building. And like, you have to be so confident and so sure of yourself and so ready to throw away your presuppositions about the format to arrive at that point. Like to have, what was it, Vile Aggregate? Yeah. Was that the, well, like, the red Eldrazi? Power of Hope, too. Sure. I mean, so many cards in that deck to to play in modern took a tremendous leap of faith, I think. And and I was always blown away by uh, the job they did at that Pro Tour and how impressive their deck building was. So the funny thing about that is like they sent me their like testing spreadsheet or whatever. And I just remember looking at this and laughing because it was like, oh, affinity, like we went three and two and like this deck, we went like three and one or whatever. And it's just like they did very little testing uh, according to the spreadsheet. And they're just like, yep, mm-hmm. deck's busted. And like, it's not like they were winning Sometimes 100%. Just, no. Yeah, it's just like so funny to me. And then like a week later, Luis was, you know, streaming it. And he was just like, oh, I'm going to cut these red cards for Eldrazi Displacer, right? And just like accidentally broke the format. Yeah. Yeah, it's, dude, it's it's funny how things work where these things that you look at and you're just, you just immediately dismiss like Drowner of Hope or whatever the Hive Master was that made insects. Wirewood Hive Master. Right, for like right. The elf deck. in the elf deck you're talking about. Yeah. yeah, just like these cards, you're just like, yeah, that's so bad. Or like this Hive Master is like never going to be good against Zoo, right? Because it'll just kill it. It's just a 1-1. One, one. And it's like, yeah, no, like actually try it. Actually play some games. Don't dismiss things because you're inevitably going to miss out on the things that are great that are not so obvious. Yeah, I, I don't get frustrated when like people get things wrong. Plus, people will get things wrong about magic all the time. I get things wrong about magic all the time. It's an incredibly complicated game. I get frustrated when people are just dismissing things out of hand. That's like a real hot button thing for me because there's so many historical examples of things which never in a million years would people have given consideration. But the one person who does gets dramatically rewarded for doing so, uh, you know, with a Pro Tour victory in the case of JC Tao. So, you don't benefit yourself at all by closing yourself off to the possibility that something like Vile Aggregate is modern playable because nobody thought it was. Yeah, the only person, I think, who thought that uh, in Inspired or Inspiring Statuary was playable was Majors. And that that was like the one thing I loved about him, among many things. But like the, the specific thing I loved was that he always wanted to try things, right? And... Statuary right. was just this card that was under the radar, and he's like, "No, this this is busted now, or is going to be busted." And he just built a bunch of decks with it. No, well, he ended up right at this point. It took a long time, but he ended up right. Yeah, I I mean, I think Statuary might have actually just been very good with Karn's release too. Possibly, possibly. I mean, you know, if you if you've played the deck at this point and 
tapped four artifacts for Karn, you you know what's up. That is an incredibly powerful play. It's like, huh, this this card makes my Karn cost basically nothing, and it works with the stuff that I already want to be doing, and all my artifacts just like cantrip anyway, yep. you know? It's like, oh, I wonder if there's something here, and it's hard to say. <laughs> Turns out. Yeah, man, it's it, it's unreal. It's just like, oh, yeah, we got it all figured out. Like, Chain Whirler's the nuts, and granted, I, I think that Chain Whirler is still a very stupid magic card for what it does to the format, but I, I think, like, the most successful red decks are going to be those that just don't even have Chain Whirler in them. Yeah, we'll see. I, I mean, I have been higher on Flame of Keld builds for a while. I don't know. I don't, I don't know where Chain Whirler is going to end up. I mean, there'll be some contingent of red-black being played for sure, just because it's a very yeah, powerful course. baseline. And I don't think it'll have a miserable tournament. I think it'll do fine. Not, not where I want to be for sure. I think there's better things to be doing. So one format left. That is my format. That is Legacy. This is the one that I am the most uh, unsure about, where my deck doesn't really fit into the paradigm that I laid out earlier, where it's just like, you know, a bunch of polarizing 70-30 matchups, which I think is kind of bad in general to, you know, just do it like half-assed, but might not end up mattering because like, it's not like this the standard and modern decks we're playing are like polarizing for the sake of being polarizing. It's just like, they are very good decks that have polarizing matchups. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't think that we're like taking like this, this full on like crazy gambit or whatever. Yeah, I, I think that those two decks are very, very good, and I would like to play a legacy deck with some more high variance matchups, I guess. But instead, I'm just playing crappy Grixis Control, which is like forty percent against everything, and I I don't feel good about it, man. So I'm no math magician, but is it possible that the correct thing to do is not to polarize every matchup, but to polarize? two of your matchups and then have one that has a layer of consistency to it. I don't know. I haven't, I haven't done the math and like, obviously the math is all wonky because none of it is an exact science or anything. Right. It's all, it's all just ranges, but I do think, so my understanding of mathematics is like, it was something I was excellent at when I was younger. And then I just stopped. I I can't tell you why, but when I got to like 10th grade, I was just like, man, I'm done with math. I'm never doing it again. Despite the fact that I was very, very good at it. And so I get to a lot of things instinctually that, and I, and I can't tell you why. And you know, maybe sometimes I'm just wrong instinctually for some reason, I believe right now that having two polarized matchups is in some way buttressed by having a 50, 50 matchup. I can't tell you any more than that. And maybe it's just because I want you to do good. So I'm making up a narrative for you. I don't know. But for some reason, instinctually, I think it's beneficial to have one kind of like middle of the road play skill based position in your three man team. I wish well, I had more support for you, but honestly, it's it's just a guess. So that's another thing, too, is one of the things that it was it was kind of frustrating because it put a lot of pressure on me, but it's not something that would be inherently frustrating was that. I was getting punished a lot by my mistakes in legacy during testing where like if I made a small mistake, not even just playing Grixis, but like playing a lot of the diff- different decks I was testing, I would just lose immediately. And it's like, this does not bode well for our our tournament because it's like, I'm kind of out of practice for legacy and blah, blah, blah. Like, I, I don't know if my deck is good, all this stuff. So it's like, um, like this is, this is not great. You know, meanwhile, I'm just like playing standard leagues with mono blue and, 
modern with dredge and just like feeling great about both of them and like thinking i'm playing great but like yeah legacy i don't know like a lot has changed since i was playing it a lot last and you know the decks have gotten better the players have gotten better like i'm getting punished by them rightfully so which is cool but it's just like man i'm i'm just kind of like worried i don't want to let down my teammates or anything but might just be what happens but but there's a lot of like I hate using the term dumb because that's not really what I mean. There's a lot of legacy decks that don't require the same level of technical proficiency that something like Grixis Control does and are still, you know, we laid out our tier one recently and included things like Sneak and Show. Um, And Sneak and Show is a deck that feels very stupid sometimes. You just kind of win on the spot and you're like, well, that was a dumb game of magic. But there's also very skill intensive games that are played at some points and where you're very much rewarded for sequencing your spells correctly and, you know, for having good sideboard plans and for being able to work your opponent into unfavorable positions. So how did something like that really not hit your radar if you found yourself frustrated with your play skill and in your inability to play games perfectly? So a lot of the decks that get free wins in Legacy are also the decks that have a lot of inherent flaws just in the decks and how they're constructed. So like Sneak and Show is like a bunch of cantrips and a bunch of various two card combos where you need to like put your thing together, but also you probably need to put your thing together multiple times because people are going to try and disrupt you. And also your deck is like half a turn slower than like a normal combo deck. So like, you know, Storm is kind of a tough matchup and Reanimator is like a nightmare matchup. So there's just like a lot of things that are wrong with a lot of these decks. And I was looking for like a 70-30 thing. And like the the thing that I wanted to play was something like Merfolk, where it's like you have Cavern of Souls, True Name Nemesis. And Kevin Jones did this a while ago where like he played it in one of the Star City Players Championships. It's like not really a Kevin deck, right? Because he's all about like Brainstorm and Stoneforge Mystic. But he, he played Merfolk in this tournament. It was actually like a brilliant call. And I don't think that the Pro Tour is necessarily going to reflect Moto as much as, you know, like, Moto is kind of crazy for, like, Legacy metagame. Like, oh, for sure. For sure. People are just playing, like, the weirdest decks. Uh, and if you go to, like, a Grand Prix or whatever, I think the density of, like, Brainstorm decks is super high in real life. And on Moto, it's just, like, very minuscule, at least compared to real life, you know? And I think. Pro Tour will be closer to normal real life, but maybe like a a little bit closer to Magic Online, depending on like who ends up playing Legacy, basically. So I think Merfolk is awful on Magic Online, but could be potentially very, very good at the Pro Tour if you're just playing against a bunch of blue decks. So there's kind of a few pillars we've talked about in the past as far as Legacy goes. Did you consider any of the Dark Depths decks, be it lands or, you know, Turbo Depths, anything like that? I'm too stupid. I don't buy that because I often play those decks successfully and I'm very stupid. So I am confident that given the amount of time you've put into this tournament, you could have gotten to a place where you could have found some success with any of those decks. So if I knew what deck I was playing three weeks ago and just spent time practicing the deck, sure. But that's not where we were. Like Legacy just had this big shakeup and it's like, you know, what the hell are people doing? What is actually good now? What's important? I'm not convinced that Dark Depths into 2020 is particularly good, especially like you look at the sideboards and like I was playing a bunch of Eldrazi today and it's like the Eldrazi decks have like Caracas, Sorcerer's Spyglass, Tumble Magnet, just like 
every deck has a million things that beat up on a 2020. So right, a lot more weird cards have gotten into the mix at this point. Yeah, uh, that are con- in contemplation of the merit lage token for sure. Yeah, so. I, I don't even think that that's like a really good decision to like play that deck. Like reanimator there, like graveyard hate is very popular. People know that reanimator is a thing. People know that dark depths is a thing. People know that storm is a thing. I agree that like show and tell is the one that's kind of like not under the radar necessarily, but like also people are playing kind of like the wrong hate cards where, you know, if you have containment priest in your deck, it may or may not do anything because they have omniscience or, Omniscience, uh, the, yeah. the new card too. The like loot. Yeah, the, the blue creature. Yep. I would be actually interested to see what a mono blue build of show and tell looks like right now. It's something that has shown up in the past for sure, just solely built around omniscience. I think it's possible that that could find itself in a really good place. As you mentioned, all these ways of dealing with a creature. And I also expect Death and Taxes to be a fairly well-represented deck. Caracas there. So, so mono blue show and tell interests me. It's something that I've dabbled with a little bit in the past, but haven't really checked in on it in a very long time now. So that would have been pretty high on my list to explore. But on the whole, I can't fault you for just kind of leaning into your play style. I think that's important in Legacy. And again, I'm, I'm going with my mathematical theory based on nothing to tell you that you're going to be okay. And you should be playing a bunch of 50-50s. I'll, I'll let you know in two days whether or not you're right. Okay. <laughs> I mean, okay. I can play good. super poorly and go like two and six or whatever, or maybe I just like wake up that day and I feel great. And, you know, I go six, two, seven, one, whatever. And, you know, my deck choice looks great and all that stuff. Like, I think when we, when we teamed together for Toronto and I played legacy, I think, I think I was like a B plus or whatever, but I definitely felt a little rusty and I think the rust is gone now. I think my my deck is probably a little bit better than that deck was. But for whatever reason, I'm just like kind of blowing it occasionally. Well, those decks lead to very complicated games. I mean, I, I will say that I was not a tremendous fan of the deck you played in Toronto. But routinely, you were just playing yourself out of situations that almost certainly I would have lost in. And I think a lot of people would have lost in. Now... That's not to say you benefit from necessarily handicapping yourself in that way. But if this deck is a degree better and you're able to leverage some of that long-term planning, which I think is the absolute paramount skill in Legacy, is long-term planning and thinking many turns ahead, which I know you're very good at, uh, this could prove to be an absolutely yeah, fine choice. It, or I could play kind of bad and like get bad matchups and just die a horrible death. But All these things are on the table. That's the way magic works. Yeah, man. Is it is it better than trying to mise with like Chalice Merfolk or uh, like some of the updated Aldrazi lists look really good where they have like Grim Monolith into Walking Ballista as kind of their yeah. end game, which is is awesome. Like I think it's a huge upgrade for them, and I I think if I had like a little bit more time to test and stuff, like Eldrazi would definitely be up there for me. I think that there's some danger in this line of thinking. I think that regardless of how the tournament ultimately pans out, you'll feel better about your choice than you would have if you played Chalice Merfolk, which is like an inherently flawed deck that relies on just getting the right things to happen and and getting the right matchups and drawing the right pieces. And 
I just have to think you no, will enjoy having agency in your hands. And like I said, this is dangerous thinking. It, it, a lot of times you're better served by letting go of the agency. But I know you're going to, in general, find yourself more engaged with the tournament and not as frustrated. If you do have a bad day, you'll bear it better than you would have having played Chalice Merfolk. No, man. You don't think so? No, absolutely not. If if I'm like, all right, metagame call, the room is let's say 60% like, you know, Miracles, Delver, Death and Taxes, like very few bad matchups, right? And then I play against all Reanimator and Show and Tell or whatever, and I just get beat. It's like, okay, like I made a call. The numbers were there. Pairings didn't line up. Bad beats, right? But if I play a deck where I have all the agency and I do poorly, then it's on me. And normally I wouldn't care about that. Like that's great. That's like actionable data, right? Like that is a thing that... I can work on and improve on. But when I also have two people who are yeah, depending on yeah, me, yeah. it blows. Yeah, that changes because the equation. This is not a time where, oh, this is, you know, my my mantra is like, oh, this is all one big learning experience, right? Like, I don't care how the tournaments go. I just want to learn and eventually nice things will happen. Like, this is one of the instances where, like, I need to show up and I need to perform because I have two other people that, you know, it, it matters for. And maybe they don't care. Like, Severa's already locked for Worlds. Like, Cho needs to X4 or something to stay gold. But it's like, I care, even if they don't. I've never talked about this before. Cho's consistency, I think, is almost always completely disregarded because he he has zero GP top eights. Is that correct? Correct. He top eight is first pro tour. Right. And no GP top eights and still manages to become a gold pro maybe now for the second year in a row. I, I mean, I think he just consistently puts up like those bread and butter finishes. And I have respect for that. I think being able to just find yourself over and over in like 15th place and 13th place, that says a lot about your game. Yeah. Is, is there something there? Like, why can't he close? I don't know. I, I honestly have no idea. But on the whole, being that consistent is tremendously impressive. No, chose chose absolutely gas. I don't know. He just does this all the time where it's like he hasn't been playing Magic a bunch. I'm just like, hey, here's this weird dredge deck. And he's just like, you know, I'm watching him play. And it's like he's just doing everything that I would have done after playing the deck for two weeks. You know, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it's like, okay, man. Yeah, (laughs) like you got it. So other than that, other than, uh, you know, my horrible anxiety and fear of failure and letting down my friends and everything, I think this Pro Tour will be fun. (laughs) Besides this soul-crushing doubt that's absolutely destroying me right now, I'm sure it's going to be a completely positive experience. I basically just want it to be over one way or the other. I don't really care what happens, but... I understand the feeling. I will be pulling for you. Like I said, unfortunately, I have some some best man duties to do this weekend, so I will get to see very little of the pro tour, which is tough, but I'll, I'll catch back up on VODs and I'll, I'll be there in spirit, you know, supporting you over your shoulder. Word, I appreciate it. Uh, that just adds more pressure, probably. But <laughs> have I have I said how much I really, really hate team tournaments? Like <laughs> you, you mentioned it briefly. Yeah, you said that earlier. Oh, man. Yeah. We have a question. We do have a question. You know, I I kind of thought I, I put the call out for questions this week, and I was like, well, you know, we just answered like three thousand questions. There's no way people will really have anything else they want to know from us. 
there's so many questions here, just like dozens and dozens of questions over in our, our discord for our patrons. So there, there was one that really caught my eye and I don't think it's something we've talked about really at all. And it's kind of a fun question. So, so I thought we'd do it this time. Yeah. Hit me. Ginger monster who I haven't seen around the discord very often. So maybe this is a new member to our, our patrons. If so, welcome. Uh, Ginger monster wants to know, do you guys enjoy the collectible aspect of magic? I imagine Jerry's card collection is pretty large. Is it a chore or enjoyable to sort through and, and have that many cards? And we, we don't talk about this at all. Like we do, you know, our little bit of financial hot specs every now and then. But uh, I, I mean, what do you think about the actual collecting process for magic cards? Are, are you a collector? Do you consider yourself a collector? Uh, when I was a kid, I definitely was like I would collect, you know, baseball, football, uh, basketball cards, like some hockey, mm. but wasn't really a fan. And then I started playing magic and it was just like, oh, OK, like I have like this nether go deck. Right. And then I acquire enough cards where like I can start trading with people. And it's like, oh, well, like. I would kind of want, you know, this foil nether spirit or whatever. And then it's like, well, once you have one foil, like, you know, gotta have them all. Right. Yeah. So it's like, I kind of went down that route for a little bit. And then because instead of going to school and getting a real job, I tried to just play magic and either like buy and sell cards or make content or shark tournaments or whatever to pay my bills. Uh, eventually I had to sell off my magic collection more than a few times. So it's basically the reason why, like, you know, I was playing in the early 2000s and I had like five pieces of power or whatever. And it's like, that's why I don't have that stuff anymore is like I had to pay rent at some point. And I had a bunch of like FBB dual lands and all that cool stuff, but I enjoy it to like there's a certain amount of satisfaction I get for like completing a playset of like FBB swords to plowshares or whatever. It's just like, oh, man, they're so pretty. They look nice. Now I want to play with them. Right. And just, yeah, for whatever reason, I, I like Japanese cards specifically, but any, anything non-English is like cool to me, basically. It's just like English is old hat. I look at it all the time. I know what the card does. I guess my, my interest in the collectible aspect of magic has waned over time. It's certainly something I was very into when I first found the game. You know, I really loved finding obscure cards because back when i started playing cards could actually be obscure and like you could be exposed to a card for the first time i am a tremendous fan of just older cards from the period i started playing so i i love like antiquities legends cards all that kind of stuff the stuff that's now worth incredible amounts of money and i do have a good amount of it i basically have like four of every card in modern uh, my standard collection is a little thin right now, just because I haven't been playing a ton of standard. As far as legacy, I have sold off my legacy collection on like three separate occasions. The first time was to pay for my wife's engagement ring. I, I think just dual lands. I always tell her 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 engagement ring is made out of dual lands. <laughs> was um, was this before or <laughs> after you proposed though? This is this is before, uh, right? It was before. It was before. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So what if she said no? That was not on the table. Okay. I mean, I always, this is kind of a, an aside, but I don't think you should ever ask someone to marry you if you don't authoritatively know the answer. And at least in my case, you know, we had talked about being married a bunch of times and actually my mom completely blew up my spot. And like I had her on speakerphone one day with Janelle next to me 
and said something to the effect of have you asked her yet so she just she oh. knew she was being proposed to before Come she on, even got Mom. the ring i know I completely blew it yeah so here's some life advice don't ask anyone to marry you unless you know what the answer is that's that's a little tip right now but yeah i, I was happy to sell my dual lands at that yeah, point obviously. i've 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 sold a bunch of legacy stuff a, a few times since then uh, so my legacy collection is not complete anymore, but I have like all of miracles. I have death and taxes, you know, just a few legacy decks here and there. And then I borrow a lot of cards. I have a lot of, you know, people with massive collections. One of my friends back in New York has, he, he's one of those guys with the preposterous, like half a million dollars worth of magic cards in his very, very like small rented apartment um, that could easily finance just like whatever he wants in the world, but doesn't. But he was always good about lending me whatever I needed. Certainly something I appreciated. But as far as just like what I target now when I'm collecting things, sometimes things just catch my eye. Like I'll see a certain card in Japanese foil and I'll be like, ooh, and I can't tell you why or what does it, but then I'll grab that card. Or uh, I bought a bunch of beta basics recently because I just love beta cards. So, you know, weird things like that are things that I'll buy from time to time, but I don't consider myself like a targeted collector. I brought before I moved to Seattle about, uh, I would say probably a hundred thousand cards to my parents' house and left them there. Mostly stuff that's pretty picked through, but a lot of older stuff, a lot of Arabian nights, legends, antiquities stuff that I, at some point will have to pull some value out of. Uh, and I only brought my playable stuff with me to Seattle. So I'm a little separated from my cards right now, but collection's still a decent size. Okay. Yeah. So my, like when I went to work for Wizards, I was just like, well, I'm not going to need this stuff anymore. And I just got rid of all my cards. That was a very rash decision. I, I mean, was it? I don't know. I, I was about to start this job where like, if I'm in the building, I literally can't sell magic cards, right? Like. Oh, that's true. You don't even have the option at that point. Okay. Okay. That changes things a little bit. And liquidity is always good. You want to have access to your money. so Right. So I, I did that and I was just like, yeah, worst case scenario, like I can just get more magic cards, right? So in my collection, like wasn't huge or anything, but it was like, you know, all the like Delver and Cobblade stuff I was using and whatever. Uh, so then when mm-hmm. I came back, uh, I was just like, oh, like I'm, um, I guess I'm going to play in this tournament. So I'd like just acquire a deck. And then I was like, oh, I guess I'll play in this tournament. And I want to play this. So I just like acquire that deck and just slowly but surely, like I, I have amassed uh, a reasonable collection at this point. I like it. I like I like owning cards, like sorting through them is kind of a hassle sometimes, but I mostly know where everything is. And it sure beats having to borrow a deck from someone every week because I was doing that in like, you know, the late 2000s, early 2010s. And I, I will I will just never go back to that if possible. It can be tough. Uh, the only spot I would do it was in Legacy just because, you know, dropping like $4,000 on a new deck is pretty dramatic. I don't mind a few hundred dollars if I want to pick up something new, but, you know, thousands often felt silly. Although if I had just done it, I it would probably be worth tens of thousands given how things have gone with the reserve list over the past few years. Yeah, so, of course. You know. Hindsight's twenty twenty. I, I could have just bought the stuff up front. But uh, yeah, I, I also, the borrowing game is, it's just a hassle. And you never know if someone's going to forget the cards you asked them for, Jerry. What? Yeah, that's right. I'm calling you out right now. I, I recently tried to borrow cards from you and you forgot them at the tournament. Oh, dude, I, I, I bought them for you. 
Well, I, I would have bought them for you, but you bought them first. That's that's true. So at least theoretically, your heart was in the It was, was Wizard's right Retort, place. man. It was Wizard's Retort. Yeah, I, I shouldn't have been playing in any way. To I tried to save you from yourself. I, I know you did. Yeah, it, it's just cleaner to have your own stuff. So I, I do keep a decent collection around. Yeah, I have basically all the legacy cards in my deck that I'm playing this weekend are mine, except for the dual lands. Okay. And I, there's just like a lot of overlap between modern and, you know, things like ponder. Like I, I have Japanese ponders for whatever reason. So it's like, all right, that's cool. And then as far as like the Baleful Strixes, Force of Wills, it's just like, I should just pick these up so I don't have to borrow them every time. And then if I just have to borrow eight dual lands, it's not that big of a deal. Yeah, that's pretty similar. Uh, you know, the modern overlap gets me to a place where if I can get some underground seas from someone, I probably have everything. Yeah, so that's kind of where I am right now. And then there there was a period where I was like, um, you know, this red-black reanimator deck seems fine, so maybe I should pick it up. And so I just have like a full legacy deck on hand if I ever wanted to play. And then I just kind of like got lazy and stopped doing it. And now all the cards are worth a million dollars. So I'm off it. Tough life. I'm off it. Tough life. Well, uh, what if you had to predict and be honest, my feelings aren't going to be hurt. And, you know, I already feel bad enough about this weekend as is, so I don't think you saying anything that I would deem negative would have any sort of impact on me. But how do you think we're going to finish? I I think you are on the cutting edge of two out of the three formats. I think there's a very good chance. You know, you said you are, are very satisfied with both your lists in both cases. And that sounds like it bodes well. I... Do I want to go as far as top eight? Can I give you that kind of pressure? I th- I think you're going to cash this PT. Hell yeah, dude. I like cash. Yeah, cash is always good. Cash is king. Well, uh, that's game. Good luck.